the Pro Wrestling Bowl. 35 short stories, including Harley Race, Ricky Morton, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 300 photos from the independent scene. Taken from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Get your book today by going to WrestleVille.com or LanceByChance.com. WrestleVille, it's where wrestling lives. Are you a fan of pro wrestling, comedy, and combat sports? Then we have the podcast for you, because we cover that and much, much more. Do you like to debate with your friends? Do we have the perfect segment for you? It's the 531, where we take any given subject, break it down to a top five. From there, we debate it down to three, and then into that number one spot. If you want to get a hold of us, find us on our social media. Search Working Fans Podcast on any major social media platform. And if you want to find the podcast, search for us on any major podcast platform as well as YouTube. Working Fans Podcast. We put in the work so you don't have to. Working Fans Podcast, episode 157. As always, we are brought to you by the Pro Wrestling Vault, volume one, and Lance by Chance, written by Vinny Berry, available at WrestleVille.com. Super Vows and Pade Du, written by Kevin Kelton, available on Amazon.com. I'll Be Here All Week, written by Ward Anderson, and Blood and Fire, written by Brian R. Solomon, all available on Amazon.com. We are brought to you by the great people over at Connecticut People Records, our wrestling commentary home of New Heights Wrestling. And this week we are talking Ring of Honor. I'm going to bring in the man they call Dave and juice to the gills, AJ Strange Brew. How's everybody doing today? A little sore, but good. It should be a fun show. I did hear that our friend Kevin Berry is actually writing another book. It's actually called Man by Dave. So that should what be a fun read. Kevin, what? <laughs> Vinny Berry, Vinny Berry. Sorry, I don't know oh, why Vinny I said Kevin Berry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm on painkillers, steroids, and antibiotics right now. Yeah, <laughs> because of my throat. He's got needles in his elbows, needles in his ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, they had to go in and open up my throat this morning. So now I know what it feels like. Speaking of opening throats, last weekend we went to Death Before Dishonor. I don't in, remember that happening, but that's cool. In Lowell, Massachusetts. I had to find a way to train. <laughs> Joe had the VIP package. They took care of my man. Yeah, you want to talk about Death Before Dishonor before we do this. Which, by the way, I did not think of a 531 list this week. And me and Joe did not popular. Then I just look online. Your top five Ring of Honor matches of all time. And I'm like, okay. Did we have this discussion last week? We could air out our No, line. we didn't. I was sitting there and while we were watching FTR versus the Briscoes, ah. I was like, ooh. I put up for a couple minutes, I had an FTR entrance video up, which we found <laughs> apparently we can't do. Talk about Some it, bro. Copyright laws are getting away from us. Mm-hmm. But then it got me thinking, like, what are some of the best all-time ROH matches? Because I think we've seen two of them with FTR and the Briscoes, and we were lucky enough to be there for the two out of three falls match last week. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we talk about the card first? Me and AJ, during the first match, were trying to get food. <laughs> that was during Cabana and Anthony Henry? Yeah, that was a very good kickoff to the pre-show. Also the best food I've ever received. 
It was not. It was horrible. Oh, chicken oh. fingers were cardboard. <laughs> Four chicken fingers and some French fries. And Dave looks at me at one point and goes, I'm not sure I can finish this. This is the longest meal I've ever had. <laughs> and Dave can usually eat anything. Like, you guys missed out. We went to the great Kowloon restaurant in Saugus, Mass. I got some Singapore street noodles. We had some Saugus wings. It was orange chicken floating around. It was amazing. If you are ever in the area while they're still open, definitely check out Kowloon. Yeah, but- instead of Saugus, we got soggy ass. Just as good. <laughs> and you guys missed the Tony Khan hype speech at the beginning of the event, which th- it will never fail to entertain me. He is just so overexcited. And in a way, it does get the crowd going, even if it can be cringe at times. When Tony Khan gets hyped, he stays hyped. After Colt Cabana, we had the Shinobi Shadow Squad versus apparently not Tully's group anymore. Mm. And that was another thing that blew me away is like, if Tony Khan brings in Tully Blanchard, he fires him in like the most, I'm not going to say disrespectful ways, but in the most forgettable <laughs> ways. Yeah, well, in fairness, Tony Khan found out that Tully Blanchard had failed a drug test while he was with the WWE. So he had to let him go. There was no recourse. It's funny is that AJ actually said to me while we were in line during the Cabana match, pretty cool we're going to see Tully Blanchard. <laughs> He's like, I think I might have saw him at a house show at the WWE around 1990. And I went to a house show too. And I'm like, nah, I don't think it was on my tape. And he's like, oh, and we were arguing. Like, maybe we saw him. Maybe we did it. Yeah. And no Tully. <laughs> this a, a minute later, they replaced Tully. <laughs> yeah, and you got to see Prince Nana, which I bet you were on the edge of your seat for. I was not. <laughs> Uh, absolutely no fucking Tully Blanchard and Prince Nana we did not realize how much effect he would have on the world championship match but we'll talk about that later yeah well yeah about, so but first too, there was a match in between there trust busters Trustbusters, yes Ario Davari and Slim J versus Cheeseburger and uh, Eli Islam Islam oh okay that's who the Shinobi Shadow Squad faced yeah Slim J looked like Brian Christopher without the steroids (laughs) It turns out I was laughing because I'm like, he looks like one of those dudes that started out in ROH with like the big pants and the wife beater. It turns Mm -hmm. out he did start in ROH. He was an old member of Special K. Not bad in the ring, but just I couldn't get with the... the Yes, when you trained in ROH, they actually gave you a wife beater and baggy pants to wear. He was on AEW Dark this week, and it might have been Tate, but he had had a match. He won. I forget who his opponent was. And then Davari came out later and talking about this whole trust fund and how he's the richest man in all of wrestling now even more money than tony khan which everybody's just like okay, this is stupid but then he brought out slim J, noting that he had scouted him and he would be part of his trust fund and they'd be looking for other people too it kind of yeah. gave me vibes of i don't know everyone's gonna know this but of northeast wrestling fans that jared character oh the trust fund yes they're actually called the trust fund. it's weird that the trust fund would remind you of the trust fund busters that's really yeah. odd <laughs> Obviously, we were super into this gimmick anyway yeah. <laughs> that followed the six-man match though with prince not uh, the embassy there brian cage and the gates of agony against alex zane blake christian and tony deppin that was a really outstanding six-man match though i thought that deppin christian and zane all got a chance to, even though they lost got a chance to shine oh yeah they're, they're, gonna, gonna, they're gonna have a crossover at all into aew that is a six-man team that would be fun to watch for the new titles that they're going to have for the, what do they call their six-man tag titles now? 
triple lucha tag title from hell or something like that whatever they call it that would be a great way to go yeah now that trios team that's made up of guys that have been big in gcw and it was good to see them get in that roh ring even if Deppin was the roh tv champion near the end there i thought it was a great chance for them to shine even though ultimately cage and the gates of agony got the win I just thought it was a great six-man match where everybody kind of shined. And I think that's something that Ring of Honor and AEW have done well is they've always had good six-man matches, kind of in the spirit of like Lucha Libre, where they've always had the good six-man matches. Whereas otherwise, in American wrestling, like WWE... And I would even say, w, not WCW, you'd have to go back to Crockett and WA. Like, nobody really, like, pumped up the six-man matches anymore. I really enjoyed it. I just wish people would hold the tag rope a little bit more. Maybe put a second tag rope out there for the other two people so they're not sharing one tag rope. we we'll get to that later. After that, Joe, you can correct me, Will Nightingale and, oh, uh, what's her name? Allison K. Yeah, Allison but- Kay. Well, I can see where you wouldn't remember Allison Kay. She's only been around for a little bit, but it was a hell of a match. Yeah, the crowd was really into that. Willow, obviously a favorite there. Yeah, and then we kicked off the main show, man. Claudio Castanoli versus Jonathan Gresham, Ring of Honor belt. And I thought it was very interesting that when Gresham first came out, Princess Nana was not even there right away. That's well, Prince Nana. Don't you despair his good name. Nana. <laughs> well, first of all, Queen Nani Boo Boo wasn't out with him, but Jonathan Gresham didn't even come out in his usual tire he didn't come out with the mask on didn't come out with anything had a boo-boo face on his face as some people pointed out i'm not saying he had boo-boo face i'm just saying that the people felt like he had a boo-boo face coming out not a not a boo-boo face (laughs) <laughs> oh, see, that might be it. But once again, it looked like his music hit and he just left and didn't even wait for Nani Nani Boo Boo to come with him. Yeah, there was a lot of controversy coming out of this saying he argued with Tony Khan. Apparently he shut down his Twitter and Dave's going to be heartbroken that Terminus might not put on a fourth show. <laughs> we'll get we'll get by. I, I thought this was a great match, though. Honestly, oh yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought yeah. the crowd popped huge for Claudio winning. Mm-hmm. If this is Gresham and, operating at half speed, <laughs> like, let's work it out and get Gresham signed. You know? Yeah, they both looked fantastic. You really could see the size difference. Holy shit, did Claudio look huge next to Gresham? But Gresham makes up for it with his ability because you never had the doubt. Sometimes when you have that much of a size difference, you have doubt as to whether the other person belongs in there, like a Rey Mysterio. But in this case, I didn't have that doubt. I thought Gresham absolutely belonged in that match. Gresham was kicking at the legs, trying to negate that height difference. You saw a couple times where Claudio's leg gave out on him. So, so Gresham was doing the best with what he could. Yeah, it wasn't like a Rey Mysterio poof 619. He actually worked the match correctly. Yeah, you mean one of the legends of the sport, Rey Mysterio, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, I'd like to see Gretchen. I was thinking this too, like maybe get back to uh, the pure pure rules matches because I was thinking Yuta's in the Blackpool Combat Club and they maybe could segue into that. And I think Gresham would be a great opponent for Yuta. And I'd I think, love to see that matchup. Love to see him versus Daniel Garcia also. Yeah, after that, we had Dalton Castle and the boys versus Vincent, Bateman, and Dutch. Again, fun match. Castle and the boys got the six-man champs. I think we were kind of calling this because we were all saying that Vincent and had the impact contract now. So here's the funny thing. We did call it. We, we knew it was coming. However, they have
have a six-man tag title already in Ring of Honor, and now you have the trios title in AEW. Seems a little silly to have both of them. I know they're not, they're going to be run separately, but maybe have one overlap the other one and let them, you know, interchange a little bit. I think the problem is here, okay, so one, I do want to say, though, AEW has so many factions. I can see a six-man making sense. Maybe we don't need one in Ring of Honor currently, but the belt's right. Well, that's what I'm actually thinking. Does anybody know, is Dalton Castle signed to Ring of Honor? That is a good question. I don't know. We got Real Yuta versus Daniel Garcia. Awesome fucking match. You know what's funny is, to me, this match is very interesting to look back on now. Because after what happened with Garcia and Danielson on Wednesday Night Dynamite, it was very interesting. It, it, it felt like one of those things where, yes, Yuta got the win. He looked great. But ultimately, Garcia was the one who was going to get elevated. Yeah, it was a great match. They didn't play to the pure rules as much as I expected. Because usually when you have that pure title, the rules become more of an issue. I think there was one rope break, which was really weird. They only utilized that. What would you think of that, AJ? The fact that the pure rules didn't come as much into play. They should have used it more. I love the rope break. To me, that rule is fantastic. The fact that you can only have three rope breaks and then after that, if you get caught in a submission, you can lose. That's one of my favorite rules, and I, and I would have liked to have seen it used more. Yeah. Overall, I, I also did want to point out, I like the fact out of everybody, everybody, even all the rest of the heels, with the exception of Garcia, did go with the code of honor, and Garcia was the one person not shake hands, and then flips off the ring of honor sign on the way out. True heel form. I think Garcia, I was talking, I don't know if it was Scott, but somebody had mentioned to me that Garcia is great. I felt like they're moving him up too. But, you know, the kid maybe has to work on his promo. I can understand that. But I have to say, there's something about Garcia's promo. I like it. He comes off real to me. Like, he comes off like he's just that fucking Buffalo, New York guy. But it's not an act, you know? Like, he is that guy. Like, I was listening to his uh, pre-show for this before it came up, the countdown for Ring of Honor. And he's like talking to you. And he's like, I'm a dog. I'm going to break you, boy. And it's just like, this feels like this is who he is. Like, he might rob you for your sneakers. And that's okay. You know? I, I feel like he's one big win away from actually becoming a superstar. We'll talk about he, that. I did like that for the judges. They had Josh Woods out there. Josh Woods ends up being on Dynamite also this week. But Josh Woods is one of my favorite Ring of Honor stars from the last inception of Ring of Honor. So it was nice to see him out there. Yeah, John Waters. And then former guest of the show ace steel or the other judges after that we had roosh versus dragon lee and it was funny when this match started i don't know after the pure rules match i thought maybe the crowd was gonna die down a bit but these fucking guys killed each other so they weren't gonna let that happen anyway even if we were and this was like a very very physical match and roosh got the win and ultimately i thought it put him in a great spot going into dynamite later this weekend too uh, focus on him and this guy just delivered all week well that's the funny thing about this card is i once again i know they're separate entities but i think that this card did a good job of building some of the people that would be on later this week in dynamite i think that it built up a lot of those stars and roosh is definitely one of them roosh looked phenomenal in this match we got to give it up to dragon lee too they took some bumps where it was really holy shit is someone dead yeah, that's where it doesn't hurt to wrestle your brother, right? Yeah, if you're gonna yeah. do or in this case, wrestling your brother really hurts. 
<laughs> After that, Mercedes Martinez versus Serena Deeb. Somebody said this was probably one of the matches where the crowd wasn't as into, but you wouldn't know it in our section. <laughs> All I heard in our section was how over Mercedes Martinez was. She came across as a superstar. I thought it was amazing. The crowd was really behind her in our section. Yeah, and both women worked really hard. I thought this match over-delivered, personally. Yeah. Um, I want to see Serena win. I think she's just such an amazing technical wrestler, but I ain't mad at Martinez. So, overall, another good match to the show. I would not be surprised with how over Willow Nightingale was if we see Mercedes Martinez down the road versus Willow Nightingale for that championship. That would be a good matchup. Absolutely. And then, Ring of Honor TV Championship. And I, I, I really like this match. Samoa Joe, Jay Lethal, because I really enjoyed that it was just like 10 minutes of a brawl outside and they're going through the crowd and going through the table and there's a ton of interference. It felt like how almost WWE, we'll see this weekend, but sometimes they'll do their last man standing matches where they'll have these crazy fights sometimes when WWE does one actually well. And then you realize, oh, shit, the bell's about to start. Yeah, it just had a little bit of that. But a much more, I don't know, an intent. Like, I felt like the crowd was most hot for this match out of everything. Well, they also made it make sense. They had no bell ring. They brawled all around the ring, beat the crap out of each other. Singh comes down. He hits Samoa Joe. It was all done before the bell. So it's not like Jay Lethal could get the win right after Singh attacked, anything like that. He gets kicked down. So it really all came across as legit. I enjoyed this match. It's a rivalry that spanned companies. It was probably one of the matches I was most excited for going in. I thought Jay Lethal was going to take the title off him, but Samoa Joe retained. Dude, I just want to add a couple other things too. Jay Lethal in the videos leading to Ric Flair's last match, plus the Ring of Honor countdown, is so on fire with his promos that I feel like even though like he's recognized one of the top guys, like he could be further along in AEW. Like this guy is so good on the mic when he's talking about in this countdown about what Joe meant to him as a, you know, like a leader and he was his protege. And then he felt like he took liberties in the ring when they met and they're referring to this old school footage and he's yelling the emotional damage. I will never get over. It is, it is just chills like Jay lethal, extremely underrated on the mic. And I also want to say, I like the build of this because Joe, it was kind of different because Joe couldn't be there. So it kind of gave you this feel of like old school days where maybe the old NWA touring champion was coming to town and the guy who's the top contender, he has to build it up. And I thought yeah. they did fantastic. With yeah, Joe, Joe was missing like Randy Osga for the first half of the show. We're going into the main event, I believe now, right? Yeah, event, man, Cash Rio, Dax Harwood, defeat the Briscoe brothers, two out of three falls. Great matchup. I heard some people talking online how it was quiet at certain points of the, this match. And they were wondering if the crowd was burnt out or what. I don't think so. Being there live, this is what I saw. A hot crowd, and there were moments where they were just intense watching it. And I refer to a thing Jericho once said when he was being at his worst heel in WWE, when he was absolutely, AJ knows what I'm talking about, the era with Shawn Michaels, and he's just being a bad guy, and he slapped his wife. And he's talking quietly, and him and Vince talk about it. Like, if you're not over the top, but your character is so good and you're such a good heel... People are listening. And I felt that's what was going on in this match. They were watching and they were intense. 
And that vibe for that show was insane, man. I don't know what it looked like from home, but I can tell you in the crowd, we were not burnt out. Nobody was burnt out. There were quiet moments, but they were more almost like holy shit moments. Like what's going to come next moments. It wasn't, God, we're tired. We're not into this. This match, all three falls after, before, it held our attention the whole way. Yeah, great seat for the show, Randy. We were right behind the commentator's desk. We were like three, four rows back. Another big question from Randy here. Yeah, I don't know if I'm watching it Sunday or the next night in the bread truck, uh, early morning, putting people's lives at danger. That's what I do. But I will be watching Ric Flair's last match this weekend, and I'll make sure not to get any spoilers. So I want to ask you a question, Dave. Usually Dave asks questions. He asks me questions. He asks Joe questions. He asks every superstar that comes down the pipe questions. I want to ask you a question, man called Dave. Are you more excited for SummerSlam or for the card that is Ric Flair's last match. So let's talk about that for a second before we get into the 5-3-1. I'm excited for SummerSlam before I answer this. I, I, the answer is Ric Flair's last match. But I'm excited for SummerSlam for different reasons. I actually was not very excited about this card. I thought this was not one of their better built cards they've had. And that's saying something. I think the matches will be fine because WWE does tend to put on good matches on the pay-per-view. I just thought we've seen a lot of these matches before. What I am interested now, though, is with the regime change. I'm not expecting anything too crazy, but I'm wondering if we'll get maybe one surprise or some subtle things that maybe weren't going to happen. I did like the interaction this week between Triple H and Seth Rollins on Twitter, where Seth Rollins said, I worked my ass off all year, and now I'm not on SummerSlam. What is going on here? And Triple H responded with, I see you. Yeah, he was saying, no matter what, fans, I appreciate you singing my song. Yeah. Hopefully they hear you someday. Yeah. He responded with, I, I hear, hear you. you. Yeah. yeah. So, and to answer to Randy's question, uh, he's popping up here. Who is taking on Seth Rollins? No one. Match has been postponed. And as of right now, there is no, that match is just not on the show. Is it possible? And this is just something that is possible, maybe. Yeah. That we don't know. Maybe Seth Rollins comes to the ring. Hey, how come I don't have an opponent? What is right. going on here? I got an idea, too. Could we see Randy Orton? Okay, see, that's where you went. You know where I'm going to go? Because it's Triple H. And I think, hey, we want to have something a little different here. What if Seth Rollins shows up? I'm probably going to set myself up for disappointment here, but whatever. Seth Rollins shows up, and hey, I don't have a match. Has anybody got the balls out here to take me? And we get Johnny Gargano. That would, be that would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, he is actually going to announce his next move at StarCast this weekend. StarCast looks off tonight with the roast of Ric Flair. And I can't remember if it's Saturday or Sunday where it's, well, it would probably be Saturday where you figure out what he's, when he announces what he's doing next. Paige also has her own panel about turning the page. So it's going to be very interesting. But I'm excited for Ric Flair's last match just over SummerSlam. I mean, I'm excited for SummerSlam, but Ric Flair's last match, there's just so many good matchups on there. But guys, I'm going to jump out now because I know you're getting your list together for the 5-3-1 of top ROH matches of all time. So guys, take it away. AJ, do you have your list ready? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. I'm going to kick it off then. And you know who to look out for, right? Oh, yeah. All right. It's a small, small list this week, guys. So that's okay. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not counting down with a small list the way we do when we have all those names. Oh, and, no, no. Uh, we'll do it at the end. We'll do it at the end. That's fine. So let's talk about it. Chris Zauhau, Book in the Territory. He's got Samoa Joe versus Kento Kabashi. 
He's got Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness. And he says, that's all I can think of. I'm not much of a Ring of Honor guy. Philip Allen from the Book in the Territory group. Austin Aries versus Tyler Black. Kings of Wrestling versus the All Night Express. Brian Danielson versus Samoa Joe. CM Punk versus Samoa Joe. And Prince Nana versus Truth Martini. I thought you were going to say Prince Nana versus Tully Blanchard. That is a great list. For those of you who are not in the know, Tyler Black is Seth Rollins. Absolutely. So I've got Zach, Mrs. St. John's favorite baby boy, and he's got the Briscoes, both of them, one and two. And then he's got Samoa Joe versus Kenta Kabashi, Samoa Joe versus CM Punk, and Danielson versus McGinnis in the unified title match. By the way, that Samoa Joe CM Punk is a six, the 60 minute draw. Absolutely. And we got Chris Spiker from Book in the Territory Facebook group. Brian Danielson versus Kenta. Punk versus Joe 2. Samoa Joe versus Kenta Kabashi. The Briscoes versus the Motor City Machine Guns. And Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGinnis. Mark Stoltz. He's got Samoa Joe versus Kento Kabashi. CCW versus Ring of Honor Cage of Death. Punk versus Joe. Any of the three. I don't want to do that. And then he's got Do Fixer versus Blood Generation. And War Games, the Embassy versus Generation Next. I have the one and only Randy Ozka, and he's got Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness in the Unified 2006, Samoa Joe versus Kenta 2005, CM Punk versus Samoa Joe 2 from 2004, Steen versus El Generico and Ring of Honor Final Battle 2012, Bucks versus Machine Guns versus Addiction 2016's All-Star Extravaganza. First, I got the Addiction versus Motor City Machine Guns versus Young Bucks Ladder Wars 6 All-Star Extravaganza, Joe versus Katokabashi, Briscoes versus FTR 1, Joe versus Punk 2, and Briscoes versus FTR 2. Maybe a little recency bias there, but I really did love those matches. And then I got producer Joe. He's got Jay Briscoe versus Jay Lethal. Best of the world, 2015. Then he's got Kamatachi. Oh, Hiromu Tanahashi. Okay, must have been another name then. Versus Dragon Lee, All-Star Extravaganza. And he's got the Addiction versus the Machine Gun versus the Young Bucks. Ladder War 6. I believe Joe was at that. And then he's got FTR versus Briscoes and FTR versus Death Before Dishonor. Nice. I've got Alex Lorenzo's list. He's got Jay Lethal versus Michael Elgin. You don't hear Michael Elgin very much anymore. You've got Bucks versus the Forever Hooligans. Matt Tavin versus Marty Scroll, who we also don't see enough anymore. The Bucks versus the Wolves at Manhattan Mayhem. And Nakamura versus Steen at the first War of the World show. All right. Continuing on, I got WatchMojo.com. Davey Richard versus Mike Elgin. Takashi Morishima versus Brian Danielson. Samoa Joe versus CM Punk 2. Brian Danielson. Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness, Unified 2006, and Kento Kabachi versus Samoa Joe, TheRinger.com. We got Loki versus Brian Danielson versus Christopher Daniels, Raven versus CM Punk, Dog Collar Match, Homicide versus Carino, Joe versus Punk, Joe versus Kabashi. All right, so I've got Scott from Voluntown, and before I get too busy and forget, he's got the Young Bucks versus Addiction versus the Motor City Machine Guns from Ladder War 2016. He's got Kenta Kabashi versus Samoa Joe 2005. Samoa Joe versus CM Punk 2 2004. Steen and Generico Final Battle. Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness for the ROH Unified in 2006. Nice. I also have Evan Ginsberg 
I think he's related to uh, Ruth Gator Bader Ginsburg, right? Is that is that his aunt? I don't know. But it's Nigel McGuinness versus Brian Danielson. Davy Richards versus Eddie Edwards, which was a fun one. Nigel versus Claudio. Nigel versus Austin. Aries. And Brian Danielson versus Morishima. I got the sporter.com. Brian Danielson versus Kenta. Blood Generation versus Do Fixer. Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness. Ring of Honor Driven and Brian Danielson versus Natural McGinnis Unified and Kento Kabashi versus Samoa Joe. I'm sensing a thing here. I have one from Last Minute Add-On, but it does not say the name on there. It is Punk versus Samoa Joe, Samoa Joe versus Kento Kabashi, Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGinnis, Kevin Steen versus El Generico, FTR versus the Briscoes, one and two, and then Addiction versus Motor City Machine Guns versus the Young Bucks, Ladder Wars six. All right, and then why don't you give me your list? Oh no, wait a minute, that was the matches to keep a tally of. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> I was just gonna let it fly. I was like, I was like, wait a minute, somebody put a long list on here. <laughs> I told you, I'm on a lot of stuff right now. I know we're gonna go off memory this week. We won't be doing the tally. That's fine. We'll figure it out. Give me your your list, AJ. (laughs) My list is actually going to be Nigel McGuinness versus Brian Danielson. To me, that's one of the great pure wrestling matches of all time. Anybody who hasn't seen that, please check that out. Samoa Joe versus Kenta has got to be in there. I love Kenta. I love the strong style. I love the fact that these two big guys just beat the living crap out of each other. You got to throw at least one of the FTR versus the Briscoes. So I'm going to throw the one we saw, two out of three falls in there. And then Punk versus Samoa Joe 2 is going to be my other one. And then I think I have one more, which is Kevin Steen and El Generico. I love El Generico. I would rather see El Generico than Sami Zayn. (laughs) If if they were related in any way. Why don't we do this? Nigel McGuinness versus Brian Danielson. That'll make number three i think we boot it i think the top two will be kento kibashi and samoa joe and i say fdr and the briscoes gonna make the list i actually prefer their first match and ultimately though joe and kibashi you can't really replace the big singles match so i'll give it to them i like it i mean i enjoyed the briscoes match like i said it's one of the best matches i've seen live having the crowd in the palm of their hands i did re-watch punk versus samoa joe this week which was incredible but i'm gonna give it to the briscoes and ftr thought you would i think the votes would be the deciding factor on that case in that case kibosh and joe will end up getting it this week i do want to throw out a couple more things for our list next week we're going to do top five potential aew main eventers in the the next few years so whoever you guys think that might be and the reason why i did that i figured we'll talk about this a little bit is i thought this week's dynamite i just wanted to profile daniel garcia roosh ricky starks hobbs and hook as all guys i saw potentially getting moved up the card yeah yeah they're all incredible talents daniel garcia is one who's obviously moving up the crowd very quickly i still believe that sammy guevara is going to be one of the future mega stars to prefix it there's so many young stars there jungle boys over like rover between now and next week let's fine tune it see who we think will be those mega stars of the future and i'm looking forward to it we got to get out of here we got time for some predictions we can make predictions real quick go ahead all right let's do rick flair's last match we'll start off on wikipedia here we got this is the bunkhouse battle royal they actually have some names listed adam priest oh shit they got names we got some names here big demo brian myers bully ray crimson crowbar gringo loco james storm carl harrow cole Mander, ricky shane page sin Bodie, 
Wolfie D. <laughs> I love it. And Wolfie D, of course, for those of you who don't know, Bill Dundee's son from Memphis Wrestling. Tremendous superstar in his own right. What do you think? I like Damo. Yeah. I think Big Damo's the biggest possibility. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a TBA, so I'll, I'll, maybe I'll wait to see who TBA is. Friend Narita versus Yua Yomura? Yeah, That's wow. the closest you've ever gotten on a wow. pronunciation. You knocked that out of the park. Yeah, I got Narita here, Friend Narita, because he's Moxley's protege, I know for a fact, and I feel like they'll put some focus on him. They yeah, are both good talents, both Yuya Yuamura and Ren Narita. They're right up there with like Shota Umino of like the top three young lions in New Japan. But I got to give it to Narita as well. Yeah, I think Narita's going over. All right. And then we got Davy Boy Smith Jr. versus Killer Cross. This is actually a rematch. The only time they ever met before was at Bloodsport. Which um, we, we saw live. Saw live. Davy Boy Smith went, won. I know he's one half of the NWA Tag Champion. I'd say this is going to be Killer Cross's night, though. That he's going to probably get the win here and maybe do for a bigger push down the road. Yeah, I think Killer Cross is going over too. I love Davy Boy. Yeah, I think this is Killer Cross's night. I got to disagree. I think Davy Boy is taking this. Well, we'll see. And I do think Killer Cross could be one of those shortlist guys that might be getting called back to WWE soon. We'll have to see. Devon Eriks? I love this match. <laughs> this is right here. Former guest of the show, Ross and Marshall Von Eric versus the Briscoes. Love me, them Von Eric boys. But at the end of the day, I think them boys are probably going to get a victory. The Briscoes, I got to put my money on them. I'm going with Kerry and David. I think that they're in all of our hearts. I think they really have a shot here. David's the future of wrestling from what I hear. So this should go well for the Von Erics. I got Lance in the sick one. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> now, this is going to be a wild brawl. I think yeah. the Von Erics, they're going to give us an incredible match, but it's got to be Mark and Jay. Yeah, I think the Briscoes are going over. They're red hot right now. Really, the only team going over them is probably the FTR. Yeah. And then we have the Wolves, Davey Richards and Eddie Edwards versus the Motor City Machine Guns, Shelly and Sabin. This is going to be a fantastic match. But I think what's probably going to happen here is we're going to go with the team that's still a team these days. Motor City Machine Guns. Impact has a little more of a presence on this show, too. So just knowing all those things, I'm going to say Alex Shelley, Chris Shaben, pull this off. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. Guys, I have an emergency phone call I've got to take. Oh, Dr. Zahorian's um, calling. He's got to get another yes, treatment. Exactly. <laughs> here we got Producer Joe still on the set here. so we can. I know. Good thing I came back. I didn't know he'd be feeding this early into the show. <laughs> He's hurt. Oh, God, he got hit. <laughs> I hope he comes back next week and this doesn't become a way of life for him. I disagree. I don't think the machine guns are taking this. I think no. it's going to be the wolves. I hope you're right. I hope it's like a night of surprises. Rock and Roll Express, Carrie and Ricky Morton. <laughs> That's right. That's how it's listed here, by the way. Carrie and Ricky Morton of the Rock and Roll Express. That hey, is- they got a contractual obligation to that name. So uh, Versus the Four Horsemen. That's what they're calling this? I don't know about this. Brian Pilbert Jr. and Brock. You're on Wikipedia, by the way, too. I've seen it listed as Carrie and Ricky versus Brock yeah. and Brian Pillman, but... I don't think they just came up with that. Uh, maybe they did. No, no. Who knows? America's most trusted news source. Who am I to argue? <laughs> I got Ricky and Karen going over. Yeah, it's tough because I'd like Brock and Brian to take it, but it's in the contract, man. They got to win. They got to win. You know, I'm, I'm gonna. I'll disagree with you on that one. I'll go with Pillman and Junior and Brock. Screw it. <laughs> I mean, I got to see them live, and they are a good team. I hope they're a team that even makes it to AEW eventually. Then we got a match was just added: Kensuke Takashita, Nick Wayne, Jonathan Gresham, and Alan Angels 
in a four corners match here. Lee Gresham makes it to that match with all the, you know, rumors about how he was coming out of death before Dishonored. That is a match I am very excited for, though. You know what? I'll go upset. Nick Wayne. If Jonathan Gresham's not there, then yes, Nick Wayne. But Takeshita has had just a great run in the U.S., which is surprising because some DDT guys come over here. And if you look at like Michael Nakazawa, it just becomes like a lot of comedy. Right. But that has a, a potential for a big in ring. Yeah, I mean, I think Tateska, showing his name, and Gresham are probably the favorites. But I just think, whatever, you know what? I could see Nick Wayne scoring a pin on somebody real quick, and it'd be a nice little feel-good moment for somebody like a young talent on this show. Yeah, I think if you're bringing Nick Wayne onto a show like this, it's almost to feature him a lot like he's been featured in GCW coming into this. Then we got, which I know I heard Dave Meltzer says, he thinks this is going to be the match of the night. These guys have killed it before. Bendito versus Laredo Kid versus Ray Phoenix versus Black Taurus. Big Lucha match. I would call Bandito in that, but I mean, it could go Laredo Kid. It could go Black Taurus for that matter. Like, they're all great in-ring talents, but you would expect Bandito to win. I'll go Ray Phoenix. We got Jordan Grace versus Deanna Parazzo versus Rachel Ellering. I don't think Jordan Grace is dropping the Impact Knockouts champion on his card, so I'll go Jordan Grace. I'm going to go Deanna Parazzo. Mm. I mean... It's not going to be Rachel Ellering. It's gonna, This is going to elevate her stock. She's going to get eyes on her, but she's not going to take the title. I'm going to say Perazzo takes it. All right, and then we got Josh Alexander versus Jacob Fatu. I absolutely love this matchup. Impact World Champion against former MLW Heavyweight Champion. But again, for similar reasons we talked about before, I don't see the Impact title changing hands on this show. So I got Josh Alexander. Yeah, I got to go Josh Alexander too. It's going to be an amazing match, but... Definitely Alexander. And then Flair and Andrade versus Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett. It's Flair's last match. I don't imagine he's doing the job here. My guess is Flair will probably pin Jarrett. I'll even go that far. Maybe make Jeff tap out with a figure four. I don't know. It's going to be some feel-good moment thing. The big thing will be how this match is probably... At is the it going to be a feel-good moment? As long as Rick doesn't fucking drop dead <laughs> as pacemaker. I mean, so. isn't that... I would say that's almost everybody's biggest worry in this is... Is yeah. not? Like, I don't know how he's going to look in the ring. Like, personally, I, I I think it's a mistake to call this Ric Flair's last match. Mm. Because if this does well financially, why wouldn't there be another one down the road? He's you know, already had a last match on the biggest stage that he could get. So, like, I'm a little weird about this match. Obviously, he's going to win. I hope it's good. You watching any of the Ric Flair last match? Or something? I have not yet. I'll probably catch up with it today. Conrad talked about this in interviews too. He says the way this came about was that they had an idea for StarCast and Rick had always talked about it. And then Rick, not being sure he could do it, consulted a doctor and that he's been bouncing around in a ring for three months now. And he also said that he had a conversation with David Crockett because he didn't like the way things had always ended with Jim Crockett promotions. And before he could even get the thing out about promoting an event, David Crockett's like, we'll do it. So if you believe all that, then it sounds like they really want to go in this as a farewell, mainly for Flair and Jim Crockett promotions. Flair's already talked about he's had people already approaching him, but he has no interest. This is his last match. But the fact that Flair even brought that up made me a little concerned. So when you bring up the Crockett promotion side of it, I do enjoy that. It does feel like a bootleg retirement, though. Yeah. You know, uh, like because he had the TNA come back after the WWE one. But I'll have to watch those. I mean, on the Starcast this weekend, there's the last ride of the four horsemen, which is going to have 
all the four horsemen on a panel. So, you know, I'll, I'll get into it. I'll see. There's also the roast of Ric Flair. I think I'm more excited for the roast than anything. Yeah. Episode two is my favorite of that Ric Flair last match. Okay, One there's of four of them, right? I only know three. So. Oh, okay. Maybe there's only three. I'll look it up. It's on fight. Yeah, I think that's going to do it for it, guys. Next week, we're looking at top five potential main eventers for AEW in the next couple of years. And we'll also talk some StarCast because we have plenty of StarCast panels. 30th anniversary of SummerSlam 92. You've got the last ride of the Four Horsemen turning the page. Mm-hmm. What's next for Gianni Gargano? Sure. We've got a lot for you. And hey, if AJ is not still on that stuff, well, <laughs> it might just be me and Dave coming back. So thank yeah. you for joining us and have a good one. We want to take a minute to thank our newest sponsor on the show, 482 Designs. That is F O U R, the numbers 82 Designs. 482 Designs. You can find them on Facebook by looking up F O U R 82 Designs at F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs on Instagram. And if you want to email them, go to F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs at gmail.com. Pretty soon, we're going to be rolling out some high-quality t-shirts and stickers that were just done by the sponsor. Please check them out for any of your screen printing needs. First off, it's light years better than our first one. Also, like, divide the washer and dryer. They look good, and they're good quality. Nice. And those stickers before Paco chewed them up were amazing. And luckily, we'll be getting some more in, hopefully, before we start selling them to fans. But that's F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs. Today, we have a very special interview for you. You might know him as Jimmy Cyclone, Lucky Pierre, Dr. Alkima, Caveman Wellington, (laughs) The Abortionist, Tele-Evangelist, The HIV Kid, The Squeaker, RUR2000, El Robato Sattva, Yam Rapport, Rocking Jerry Brown, Let Me Take a Breath, El Paparazzi, and Donkey Show Dominguez. He is Kurt Brown, also known as Vandal Drummond. Did I get all the nicknames in there? If you saw my jaw drop a little bit, looking astonished, it's not because I'm stoned this morning anyways, but it's because I never saw somebody cover so many of my aliases. (laughs) If I think over it, I wouldn't be shocked if there's one or two that was left out, but I'm blown away that I can't off the top of my head think of any other ones. (laughs) You did? Oh, oh, did did you do Jimmy Cyclone? Yes, I actually kicked off Okay. I should have assumed it. You covered so much ground. I, I figured I just meant it. So cheers to you. Cheers. Hey, well, two out of three of us being stoned isn't bad. Now, <laughs> Dave, you're, you're unfamiliar with Vandal here. So is there any questions you want to ask him not knowing about him? You know, just because I can't wait for you to dig in. You're about to take the tab and take a ride. Aliases and talking to you about some of the like how long you knew Meltzer and stuff at, before the show started, the first thing that's popping is like, okay, you've been around the business for a while. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of people we ask on the show, you know, who did you get into for pro wrestling? We're like, oh, The Rock, Steve. You're going to have somebody completely different, I feel like. So I, <laughs> what was your fandom and what got you to break in? I discovered professional wrestling on a summer night in 1972. This was when the Munich Olympics were happening. And 
I guess I should preface by saying, you know, my family was not a sports family. My dad was a nuclear physicist who played classical piano and liked folk dancing. And my mother was a big fan of ballet. And I wouldn't say they were square. They they appreciated modern folk music like Bob Dylan. They loved rock music like the Beatles. And, you know, as often as my dad played Hungarian Rhapsody, he would also listen to yodeling Slim Clark. He was a true Renaissance man. So... I didn't know what pro wrestling was. Wrestling to me was that stuff you see in the Olympics. I have a friend, never forget his name, John Bodkins. He's staying the night on a Saturday night. And we're just looking for something fun to watch. And I turned to channel 13, KCOP, and there's the heel, Fritz von Goring, just kicking, stomping, and raking the eyes of poor Salvador Lothario brother of Jose Lothario. And I'm looking at these two guys in this, like, this boxing ring, surrounded by a small number of fans. And when I say studio wrestling, it's not like most studios where they're all sitting in folding chairs. These were like makeshift bleachers. So it gave the appearance of them kind of surrounding the ring. And I just like, whoa, what? These grown men just maiming each other like the way we're not to, you know, supposed to behave when we grow up. And I'm, John, look at this stuff. This is like barbaric. Look at this. What is this? And he just looks at me totally bemused because that's wrestling. And I'm like, huh? And yeah, I was baffled the first few weeks I watched it because I saw very little wrestling. It was mostly punching, kicking, and a little bleeding, you know. And my first hero was a guy named Raul Mata, who was a pretty big star in Mexico in the 60s and 70s. Then he got a pretty big push here in LA, somewhat of push in Houston. And then when he wrestled for Eddie Graham, he, you know, he met a woman, I, you know, by everybody I know who never got to meet him, unfortunately. He fell in love and didn't want to travel anymore. So he was just kind of like an opening about guy or, or TV enhancement for Graham in Florida. So he was my first big influence. And it's a shame more video doesn't exist to him because this guy was, he wasn't like a top shelf champion baby face. Well, in Mexico, he held the light heavyweight title there. But the guy was a very dynamic worker, and he was he was one of the five best baby faces I've ever seen in my life. Whenever you saw him make the comeback on the heel, this guy was just on. I mean, he was great. Now, the other huge influence to me that same year is after I was watching, pardon me, after I was watching for about five months, I noticed that there was wrestling on one of the UHF stations, Channel 22, which is a Spanish station. And so I said, oh, this must be from Mexico. I never watched it because it aired the same time as Channel 13 wrestling. I decided to turn it on during commercials. And I'm shocked to find it's another TV studio show. (laughs) But what's blowing my mind is the wrestler is coming to the ring to music, a very flowery song. And this wrestler happens to be a circus clown. This guy's stuff is a motherfucking circus clown named Peppino. And at first I just thought, oh, they must be making fun of pro wrestling. This is ridiculous. And I turned the channel. But every now and then I'd turn it back to find that I turned it on when another wrestler who is being brought into the TV studio in a space capsule is a space creature named Yolanka who is a very clean wrestler. And when the bad guys are breaking the rules too much, he gets out his magic pacifying gun and makes them behave themselves and wrestle clean. But that didn't compare to La Momia, the mummy. It was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And I was 11, no, I was 10 years old. 
and I didn't want to admit this to my friends because it was supposed to be so hopeful. I don't mean to keep running. All right. Well, we'll fill up some time while he's figuring it out here. I'm on edge like the mummy. Like, I want to hear about this story. (laughs) You can see why I've wanted him on because being on the 605, he always has these wild stories. And he he came on our radar from the 531 Dream Bret Hart matches where he had the spaceman Frank Hickey. and. Uh Oh, that's right. That's right. You'll hear a lot about him talking about either like wrestling in the past or like these off the beaten path characters. And when he comes back in here, he's from L.A., so almost probably the same area around as Roy Lucier. So he's got that regular wrestling and also kind of like being able to pick up that Lucha Libre at the same time. Yeah. And now that Vandal's back, we will get to hear about his wrestling scene because while you were gone, we were kind of... Am I, al- am I allowed back in the studio, guys? Yeah, Dave wants to know about the mummy, but while you were gone, I was kind of covering how on the 605, you talk about these historical and kind of off-the-beaten-path characters, and like former guests of the show, Roy Lucher, you're mm-hmm. from that California territory, so you get all kinds of wrestling. Fill Dave in about the mummy, and then let us know about kind of what your wrestling scene is like. Yeah, the mummy was... This show was called Titanes en el Ring, and it was the creation of a wrestler in Argentina named Martin Caradagian. And it's no exaggeration to say he's, a, he's to this day a huge icon in Argentina, not just with the wrestling community, but the Armenian community in Argentina, because his parents fled the Turkish genocide to come to Argentina. And they weren't always overly welcoming to these immigrants, and they would refer to the Armenians as Turks. Well, Martin Cardigan was a cat who, he was a small fireplug of a guy. And in the 1950s, he got into the business when the guys that were big hulking guys, kind of like the WWF feels in the 70s, you know, like a Nikolai Volkov type. But somehow he worked his magic, figured out how to get over. And when he got enough clout, demanded that they stop calling him a Turk and demanded that when they billed him that they put the Armenian over his name. And in the late 50s, when a guy named Man Mountain Zelezniak, who was a, a huge icon in wrestling, I know he wrestled in other countries too, don't know if he did the States, but he got tired and wanted to sell the promotion. So he sold it to Cardigan, who started doing TV in 1962, and after a few years decided, I'm going to give this an overhaul and make it like a kid's show. When I started watching in 73, all the wrestlers had their own personal theme songs, and the musician who wrote them wrote these really catchy songs that if you heard them once or twice, they'd be in your head for years. They're just catchy. So The Mummy was kind of like the only wrestler who was probably as famous of, as Martin Caradigian. And it was just like the old movie mummies where he came out in bandages and would sloth his way to the ring to this spooky music. And when I was a kid, I thought, oh, he must be the bad guy. But as I later learned, he was actually the hero. And But he'd wrestle faces or heels every week and then play his theme song through the whole match. And the whole story of the matches, you know, the other wrestler would give everything they could to you know take the mummy down but 
nothing could defeat him. They, nobody knew his soft spot, and he would always put them away with the Dr. Spock hold. And, you know, I didn't want to admit it to my friends because it was so hokey, but I would have nightmares about the mummy sneaking up on me in my dreams. And this was so huge. The version of the mummy in 1972 and 73, he worked it so beautifully, and it was so over with the mainstream public that a magazine called La Gente, which was kind of like, I don't know, Life magazine that covered both politics and pop culture. They declared him the pop culture phenomenon of the year. It was He was that over. And since then, South America, the mummy is the most copied gimmick of anything. In, in, in fact, in, in Uruguay, about 10 years ago, they had a wrestler called La Momia de Elvis. It was an Elvis Presley mummy who... He didn't sloth around. He got in there and he shook his hips and jived and, you know, worked his magic in a different way. I like but, that. It almost gives a future for Wayne Ferris if he wants to have that one last comeback. Oh, that would be sweet. Oh, my God. I, if I ever get a gazillion dollars, I'm tagging Wayne with the mummy of Elvis. And it sounds like your wrestling scene is a little bit Lucha Libre, a little bit. I don't know what you guys get out in California. So what did you watch the most of? Yeah, we didn't actually get Lucha Libre airing from Mexico. Unfortunately, that would have been beautiful. But the only other territory that pushed wrestlers from Mexico as much as the Los Angeles territory did was Houston, Paul Bosch. And I'll be honest, I think Paul Bosch recognized the importance of using wrestlers from Mexico much more than Mike LaBelle, the promoter in Los Angeles did. But LaBelle did notice how valuable they are. That's why they used a wrestler like Raul Mata. The first live match I ever went to in 73, you know, Ray Mendoza was in the main event. And I was excited because I had never seen him before. But, you know, there's a lot of Latino kids at my school. And whenever I bought my brought my Lucha Libre magazines that I bought from the little, you know, you know, market down the street, you know, they had want to look through them. And as soon as they saw Ray Mendoza, they were telling me, this is the man. This guy is the real thing. You know, they say, yeah, Santo's cool and everything. But these kids knew Ray Mendoza is the real deal. Mm-hmm. So I was on cloud nine that that was my first main event. And those kids weren't kidding how over this guy was. You know, he was walking to the ring and it, this wasn't orchestrated. A bunch of fans just grabbed him and put them on his shoulders and carried him. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a level of over you don't see almost anymore. How yeah. do you go from being a fan to getting in the business? Who did you train with? Where were your early matches? It wouldn't have happened at all, I think, unless... Until I was, I think I was 15, and I started subscribing to the Global Wrestling Newsletter that was put out by Tom Burke. And I don't know if you know the name Tom Burke, but he was a wrestling journalist before there really were wrestling journalists. While he still did kayfabe, I should add, in addition to the newsletter, he has the most amazing wrestling library you will ever see. And on top of that, he was... You know, while it was said that this guy named Nat Lubay was the editor for Ring Wrestling Magazine, it really was Tom Burke who was doing that. So I got the nerve to call Tom Burke just to ask some dumb questions when I think I was about 16. And it got to the point where I would call him every Wednesday and ask him silly questions about the business and stuff. And then when I was 17, he was saying, do you have a camera? And I, I think I sent him some articles what were they for? Oh, I was doing just some correspondence for Ring Wrestling Magazine, some things with results and just little info on the territory. But 
He said, I told Jeff Walton about you, who is the publicist for Mike Lavelle. And he says, if you go to San Bernardino Arena in the next couple of weeks, bring your camera, bring, bring a tape recorder, and I want you to interview Barry Orton. I'd like oh. to do a story on him. And to this day, that was more exciting than, you know, my first match even. Like, oh, man, I'm in. And from there, I just started becoming, you know, frequenting the San Bernardino Arena. Did that for about a year. And then I met two, the first two wrestlers I actually hung out with were this guy named Diamond Timothy Flowers, who was getting a big push in 1981. Another guy who I think, yeah, he also held the belt too, named Bad Boy Bobby Lane, who was the son of wrestlers Bobby Pico and Ann Laverne in the Amarillo area. And they were also the parents of Marie Laverne, who was a woman wrestler throughout the 1970s. And so hanging out with them first got me a good understanding of the business. And it was a beautiful lesson because Tim Flowers was one of the most brilliant wrestlers in ring I ever saw, but totally did not get the business. I mean, great, great in-ring worker, but always whining about, oh, I have to do a job to so-and-so. And this guy, Bobby Lane, somebody being in the business, like literally growing up in wrestling arenas with his father, he was like, what's the big deal, man? We're here to tell a story. And Bobby Lane was even like kind of aghast that when he came to L.A., he said, wait a minute, I, they're putting me like in the semi-main and they want me to do an interview on TV. What's this about? I'm going, well, isn't that what you want? And he goes, no, I go to, I, I'm a worker. I go to the territory to work, bounce to make the other guy look good. And he says, you know, I, I make it look like I'm a badass. And then I make it look like this guy kicked the ass of this badass. And he said, I'm not a main event wrestler. I, I, I'm here to make the other guy look good. And the ironic thing is I guarantee you he could have cleaned house on three quarters of the dressing room. He was a tough guy, but he is very proud of his craft. Before I ever stepped in a ring, you know, that was probably one of the best lessons I ever got was just hanging around that guy and him just explaining, you know, it's not about what kind of push you get. It's what kind of story you're telling. And that's pretty wild because you would think all wrestlers want to be in the main event. And this guy's like, no, I know my place. Like, that's not exactly this moment. And he was proud of what he did. He was proud that he could look tough, but make the other guy look tougher. And that same year was when I was introduced to Dr. Jerry Graham at Strongbow Stadium in Bakersfield one Saturday night. And that was a turning point in my life. Oh, my God. That uh, was going to be the next question. because You told so many Jerry Graham stories. On the 605. How do you come across a guy like that? And what can you tell us about him that maybe you haven't shared on the 605 or even some of the stories from there? Yeah, I feel like I'm always going to every now and then, while I probably know a lot of the Jerry Graham stories, every now and then I hear one I didn't hear. And when I say Dr. Jerry Graham stories, I'll preface by saying before I met Dr. Jerry Graham, I heard a number of these stories and I thought, oh, those are cute, but he sounds crazy, but I bet they're a little exaggerated. So it's a Saturday night and Tim Flowers, while he wasn't working for this promotion, it was opposition to L.A., by an ex-wrestler named Anton the Ripper Leone was doing an outlaw group. And Tim Flowers heard Jerry Graham was there. And Jerry had trained Tim in the Northeast. Might be one of the reasons Tim had such a knack for in-ring working. But the person who actually introduced me to Dr. Jerry Graham that night, even though Tim was in the dressing room chatting with him, was John Tolis. Now, John Tolis was such a huge name in L.A. I mean, he was an icon 
so when he walked up to me and said, hello, young man, how you doing? I'm like, Mr. Tolis. And I was this 115 pound kid who looked like a Q-tip because I had this giant bleach blonde afro. <laughs> and <laughs> with a straight face, he says, listen, I'm Dr. Jerry Graham's ride home. He lives in downtown LA. I live more in the Thousand Oaks area, which is way out of my way. Is there any way you could give him a ride home? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And that was probably the best work John Tolis ever did. Uh, even though he s helped sell out the LA Coliseum in 1971, him keeping a straight place and getting somebody else to drive <laughs> Dr. Jerry home, that's a worker. Now, so Dr. Jerry, he was as wild as all the stories say. Every bit as wild. People will still exaggerate some of the stories I've heard, which baffles me because you don't need to exaggerate Dr. Jerry Graham stories. That first night I met him, he comes out of the dressing room and he's stone cold sober. And if I remember right, he was wearing his blue polyester slacks and his red button up shirt with white polka dots. And he's a good 300 and something pounds with bleach blonde hair. And when he was sober, oh my God, not you, you would never meet a more articulate cat. This guy just is like, well, hello, young man. It is good to meet you. And I do appreciate you being willing to give me a ride, you know, and he's just putting me over and I'm just like, yeah, I'm just all starry. I'd like, like, oh, wow. And, and uh, I should also say I had been drinking heavily and so had my friend Lloyd. So Tim Flowers was the one driving the car that night, but it was my car, my brand new Chevy Citation. Yeah. So we're going down Highway 99 late at night and... You know, I'm already marking out because I just ate a sandwich that the wrestler Ron Pope made, who was the mighty Zulu. One of the worst wrestlers of all time, but, you know, still, he was mighty Zulu to me. So I was marveling over that I was eating a sandwich he made. And I'm I'm just sitting there plowed as ever in says, Tim, could you uh, pull off the highway here? I'm going to get a couple of beers and, you know. Not not being around the wrestling crowd a lot, I, did, I had no idea that wrestlers were just, like, you know, smoking dope and, you know, drinking you know on their road trips so he goes into the liquor store and i'm thinking well i shouldn't probably let people be partying in my car but he's dr jerry graham so he does come out with a few beers a six pack he also comes out with a few bottles of liquor and a couple of bottle of wines just in his arms as if he's carrying a baby with <laughs> this drunk this drunken not a drunken smirk but just a smirk on his face like hmm, ah, hmm. We're going to have a party now. So he sits in the car and he reaches into his pocket and he throws like half a dozen cigars at us in the back seat. And he just screams, ah, cigars from heaven, kid. And then Tim Flowers said, oh, dear, you did your old cigar from nowhere trick, doc, which means he stole them from the liquor store. <laughs> so we're going down Highway 99 and he's just he's drinking the hard stuff like it's water. And it's Jekyll and Hyde. He went from the cordial man to a combination of the Tasmanian devil and W.C. Fields. He is just drinking and starts talking like, yeah, like, ah, it was his war cry. <laughs> and I'd never heard anybody say this before, but I heard it every time I was with him when he had been drinking. One, when he'd empty a bottle, he'd just open the window and throw it onto the lane next to him, not even looking to see if there's a car driving in. And wow. he would he just looked into the sky and just screamed to the heavens, You suck your mother's pussy, you cornhold your pregnant brother, and you fuck 
fucked your pregnant sister, you whore. <laughs> and when I say he said this every time he is drunk, I don't mean once or twice. It was like a religious mantra. <laughs> And I just wow. found out when I was doing newspaper research for the books I'm working on, I came across a reporter who talked about hanging. This was in 1963. A, a journalist was talking about parting with the doc in a bar a few years earlier, and he mentioned the doc's war cry. And he also said the doc talked about the doc telling a promoter something about his parents, which I assume was the suck your mother's pussy. <laughs> wow, so you're this, in loathing with Dr. Jerry, huh? Oh, yeah, this was amazing. And as we're halfway home going up the grapevine, I'm just saying, you know, like, if there's somebody above, I don't care which God it is, get me home, I swear I'll never hang with this guy again. But I lied. You know, I, I asked the powers to just get me home safe, and they did, but... I lied. And the next great experience, which made me think I must know this man, I have to know this man, come hell or high water, was a fellow named Tom Hankins, who was also a guest on the 605 once, was somebody I had recently met. And this guy was like a hippie and a rocker from day one who also did some wrestling in the South. And he had just met the doc along with me and Lloyd. And he at the time was working for some guy who owned like a whole chain of adult bookstores. This guy was having a Christmas party. And Tom said, I insist that you guys bring the doc to my Christmas party. I'm like, are you sure? And he goes, hell yeah, I want the doc there. So it was me, Lloyd, Tom, and a guy named Ed Daniels who wrestled as Tom's brother. So... Everything is going fine at the party. He's being his genial self to people. And then he just puts back beer after beer after beer. And by the end of that night, the only friend he had in that whole restaurant was the waiter who he just kept calling, Garcon, Garcon, uno mas cerveza. <laughs> and this guy, this waiter, just grinning like the devil, keeps bringing Doc beers because he knows he's, he can see the Doc's making trouble, but he never cuts him off. And finally, Doc says, Ha, oh, young man, what's your name? And he goes, Oh, you just called me Pancho Villa, sir. And Doc says, Ha, oh, you're beautiful. I love this man. He started a fight with somebody, and I can't remember exactly what went down. He pulled the guy across the table, he broke the table. And he's just staggering and swaying as we leave the restaurant that night. And Tom and his friend, as we're getting Doc into my car, they have a Christmas present for him. And it's an oblong box with a bow on top. So, you know, it's liquor. And we're saying, no, no, you're not giving it to him as he's getting in our car. We'll give it to him when we get to his hotel. So we drive him to the hotel in downtown LA. It was called the Imperial Hotel, and it was anything but Imperial. It was <laughs> built like in the 1920s. And I saw him at the, that hotel many times, but the best way I could describe his living conditions and just his aura in general, it's the combination of a gritty Raymond Chandler novel combined with a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> and... I don't say that like wink, wink. That's what his existence was like at that time. It took us forever to get three stories up to his room. Mm. And my friend Lloyd was a big strapping guy, about 6'1". And I mean, he wasn't an athletic guy, but he was solidly built. And Doc is just like, just, you know, uncooperative and just being silly. And as soon as we'd get him standing up, he would just smirk at us and, and fall down like, you could hear somebody saying timber and he just fall down crashing to the ground knowing wow, he's almost fucking do with like us. a flare flop. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> a 300 pound flare flop 
Ooh. And he and he'd do this on the cement sidewalk and everything. And we are, yeah, we're up to the third floor. And finally, Lloyd says, Jerry, get it together. We got to get home. It's one in the morning. And Doc just grabs him and like judo, like there's like a judo toss across the hall. And Lloyd fortunately magically landed on his feet. <laughs> but both Lloyd and I looked at the other shocked, like, okay, he's 300 pounds and he's, he can't go more than a minute in the ring anymore, but he still knows how to chuck somebody easily. So the moment when I said, I have to know this man is he's trying to get his key in the door and the door is just this big door that you could probably just almost walk through it. Like in a bad movie, it was so badly constructed, but he can't open the door. So Lloyd opens the door for him and the lights are up, but there's a, you see the glow of a black and white TV. And we look in and we see somebody laying in his bed watching TV and it's a blonde. He's got a cute blonde. Yeah, I mean, no, not, not a total knockout, but uh, from what we could tell in the dark, whoa, how does he do it? He's hit rock bottom. He lives in a flop house, but he's got a blonde in his bed. <laughs> and so Lloyd hands the doc his keys and doc just goes, ha, thank you, thank you. He throws the keys behind him. <laughs> doc holds him his present. Doc throws the present behind him. Come call me do call me and we're like okay doc and we're just marveling what wow and two days later we went to pick him up to take him to hadco plaza which is where the local lucha libre shows ran every sunday and when we pick him up he's you know in good condition and he gets in the car seat and we say so doc who's the lucky lady in your bed and he goes aha She's a sweetheart. That's Maxine. She's wonderful. You know, she keeps my room clean. Yeah, sometimes she makes me a nice meal. And, oh, God, what a woman in bed. Ha! Huh? She's all woman. And then he pauses. Let me correct that. Above the navel, she is all woman. <laughs> and this is 1981. And he'd tell anybody that sober, you know. Uh. Where all the guys are bragging about getting women, he'd brag, oh, I had this woman here, I had this woman there. Oh, and then there was a guy who gave me a blowjob, oh, and then he gave me some money too, you know? Yeah. And I just said, I got to know this guy. <laughs> so he's the one who kind of first started training me along with Tom Hankins. Mickey Doyle, journeyman, gave me some of the most valuable lessons. And I didn't really, you know, work regularly until I left the scene and came back in the late 80s and was trained by a lot of local Latino wrestlers at Gill's Gym. And that was the most fun phase of my life wrestling wise. It's amazing the way you describe Dr. Jerry Graham. It's <laughs> it's almost not surprising that Vince McMahon looked up to him with just that kind of like <laughs> insaneness. Now, did Jerry ever talk about Vince? Did he ever mention Vince looking up to him? Or when you met him, was he like trying not to think about the past? No, no. He talked about the past all the time. You know, many stories that it was hard to tell. He told some stories that definitely were not true, but he also told some stories stories that we thought, yeah, right, Jerry, this is bullshit. And we'd later find was true. And one of them was that he bought Vince McMahon his first set of weights when he was 14 and took him out on the town and gave Vince Jr. a bleach job. Oh. And he said he got into so much trouble. And from like many years, I thought either he was bullshitting us or it was exaggerated. Lo and behold, I read an interview with Vince where he said exactly that. 
Yeah, it's funny you said that because I think I saw that in a documentary about Vince or something where he talked about that exact story. Vandal, just from listening to you, you seem like you're a big historian on wrestling, that you just love the history of pro wrestling. Is that true? And are you generally just a guy mm-hmm. who's with history, not even just pro wrestling. Oh, yeah. I'm a history nerd, both pro wrestling and I love, you know, growing up here in Southern California and LA, I love reading anything about LA history. Not so much the founding of it, but the whole 20th century, everything from the movie colony to vice squads to just everyday people, just history of, you know, part of it is I had grandparents who had a ranch in Lawndale, California, and They still had a lot of the remnants of 20th century California when I was a little kid. They had an oil well in their backyard, a very SoCal thing, and a very lucky thing because they made some money off it. But wrestling history, I am obsessed with. I'm actually working on two books that I plan to self-publish. And one is going to be on the journeymen, most of whom passed through California, and also a lot of them will be Latinos. And reason being is when the Latino wrestlers really influenced me a lot, and the local Latino boys are kind of like a second family to me, the Moro family, and a Superboy and Capitan Oro, who I was able to actually book for Michinoku Pro Wrestling in 1993 and 94. I'm really kind of enamored with the role of Latinos in wrestling in Southern California. And, you know, for years, like many places that have a token Latino here and there, but they wouldn't really give too many of them a push, even though, you know, they would have drawn bigger houses that way. And the reason I love the journeyman history, a lot of that goes back to one Bobby Lane telling me the role of a journeyman. And also my first hero, Raul Mata, was a classic journeyman. And I especially love focusing on the journeyman of the 30s and 40s. Because, you know, this is the golden age for writing about the history of the business. But when people write about guys in the 30s and 40s, with the exception of the books written by Greg Oliver and Steve Johnson, you don't see a lot of history of the guys who are somewhere in the middle. There was a wonderful book written by Steve Yo on Strangler Lewis, a great book written about Gorgeous George about 12 years back. Mildred Burke, but the jurymen often get overlooked. And some of these gentlemen I am researching are guys who, you know, recognizable in the 30s, 40s, 50s, but in history, they're just forgotten except for a couple of hardcores on the internet. And so I want to write a book just kind of covering their stories. And I also want to write a book on the local Lucha Libre scene here in Southern California. And the reason I'm doing that is the Lucha Libre community here has been around since 1970. And while there's a lot of communities like this all through Mexico, I can't think of a place in the United States where somebody opened up just a little gym in 1970. Gil Ariano is a guy who had an auto shop and he was a wrestler from the TJ area, Tijuana. And he just gutted the supply room, built a ring in there. And from 1970 to 2006, that was the training ground for a lot of the local wrestlers and even a couple of guys who went on to be stars like Super Astro. So I want to tell that story too. You know, now, you know, the, the community has been around so long that there's a lot of guys who started out there who have grandchildren who are now on the wrestling scene. And it's interesting because a lot of these grandchildren are people who watch wrestling every week. You know, 
my friend Fredo and Sparza and I, who is, who is a very good wrestling historian, I'm more a his- history nerd, where he's a great historian. We were chiding Superboy's son for not knowing who Brian Pillman was. And he's saying, but you don't understand, man. I just go to the lessons every week and I learn how to perform. And he says, I just do this because my dad does it. And I work my job and, you know, just want to hang with my friends afterwards. Wow. Now, is it this love of wrestling history that caused you to create the Pulpo pages of Pro Wrestling Journeyman on Facebook? Oh, thank you for bringing that up. And please, anybody interested look that up on facebook ask to join come one come all one of the journeymen who i have become most enamored with is a gentleman who wrestled here as jimmy el pulpo in the southland in the late 1930s to the early no late 1930s to late 1940s and he's also one of the guys who was one of the pioneering wrestlers when the Ludroth family started cmll in 1933 he was one of their stars for several years Jimmy El Pulpo means Jimmy the Octopus. He was this tall, lanky guy, and he actually got a really huge push here in L.A. in the late 30s. There's even a photo op with with him with Strangler Lewis because the storyline was Lewis was going to manage him. And I think the hope was that Jimmy El Pulpo would be the next big draw to maybe kind of fill the shoes of Vincent Lopez, who was a huge box office draw in Los Angeles. And the combination of things, El Pulpo was very popular, but I don't think he was quite a main event draw. And on top of that, I have since gotten in touch with some of his daughters. While apparently he has worked very hard, he was one of these renaissance men who just want to make enough money to, so, you know, in wrestling so he could get a real full-time job and raise a family and he's a guy who just captured my imagination and it took me several years to actually locate his relatives and they said something similar to another woman who was the daughter of a journeyman named Ray Duran. When I got a hold of the daughters, they seemed surprised that I knew anything about their dad. And one of them even said, well, I think you're family now because you don't know about our father than we do. And the daughter of Ray Duran, Mimi Duran, when I got a hold of her, she actually said, okay, so her dad wrestled from 1937 to 1973. And this guy wrestled everybody under the sun. Everybody from Ricky Dawson to Charo Aguayo to Les Thatcher. I mean, this guy wrestled everybody over generations. And when I got a hold of his daughter, she said, okay, this is bizarre. Nobody aside from family has ever asked me about my father's wrestling career. And so we became fast friends and he's a fascinating character too. And I, I just, you know, yeah, well, I guess I am the nerd in a room full of nerds. I am, while everybody is fascinated by the Jim Alondos and the Stanislaus Abiscos, I'm fascinated by the Jimmy L. Pulpos of wrestling. Is it this wrestling nerddom that brought you to the 605 podcast? How did you become acquainted with Brian Last? Because I have to thank you and the 605. You guys got me through some hard times at a job I hated. And when we did overnight inventories, I would specifically save the 605 for the inventory because I would just listen to you guys zone out counting. And there are times I had to stop because between you and Howard Baum doing the impressions, <laughs> Jerry Graham stories, I just, it got me through a tough time and I liked how nerdy you guys were with history. So how did you become mixed up with that crew? First, thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me. 
like a lot. You will. <laughs> and Howard is a riot. I love Howard. <laughs> Fredo Esparza and I used to do a podcast called Slam and Stam. And it started out just me and him. And we just, we talked wrestling, but we also just talked freaky movies and what we were digging you know it wasn't a very organized podcast it was just two sophomore clowns just talking about this that and the other thing and then my friend dan farron joined the podcast and then david bixon span joined us became a regular guest and he was a great addition he was he was funny god his sense stuff- of humor gets me as well just the oh. dry wit and like how sharp he is yes and man his, his historical research I mean, finding FBI files on people. I don't know people who did that before. (laughs) Between the Sheets is another podcast I love because of how deep they go into everything and how much they genuinely know and like get to the bottom of the actual story. And that's one thing with Brian Last too, like his love of preserving history and getting the story right. Like I said, it's the golden age of wrestling history where when I was growing up, if you found a book on wrestling, it was kayfabe stories that you know you might as well just write a book of fiction you know with a few exceptions but now man the stuff people are getting into and uncovering it's awesome and so anyway that's how uh, david bix and i became connected and when he started the podcast with brian i think it was him who suggested let's get vandal on and that's how it started and man i had a lot of fun both those guys on the show Yeah. And what's become of the super podcast is just great. No matter how in often it comes out, I feel like it's the most anticipated drop of that day. You know, he's built such anticipation and he was the first one that I heard of referring to his podcast as an art and looking at it being filmed in a very or recorded and presented in a very specific way so i think it's great and you know it connects us with people like you Mm -hmm. who have great stories and as dave can tell you when these guys want to do like a regular ass podcast here i'm always the one that's like well where's the outsides of that story can we get a little Mm -hmm. in there can we get a little real life in there and i think that's kind of inspired from how you bring yeah of left field stuff to the show yeah yes brian has brian's one of the i don't know i think he's one of the building blocks of podcast i mean as i'm looking at your guys setup as you could tell at the beginning of the podcast i'm still a klutzy dinosaur so as far as things like production technology go but there were i remember 10 years ago there were a lot of podcasts that they were fun but they were very low production and looking at this right now it's like this is awesome right here what you guys are doing and yeah i think brian is one of the guys who really brought the whole production thing to it yeah i mean there were some other people who did it too but he had such a unique podcast and now it's pretty much kind of a network which is really cool and i understand why he doesn't have more episodes of the 605 super podcast he has a ton of work to do just with the jim Cornette podcast alone and all the other ones he's managing boy do i miss those those are fun episodes I know we talked to Brian Solomon last week because he's got the newest show on the Mm -hmm. Arcadian Vanguard network. And I told him, I'm like, that's a dream to get a show on a network. Yes. You've been with us for almost an hour and we've had a great time, but we don't want to keep you too long. Before we let you go, since you're such a history nerd, can you give us your top five wrestling books that you'd recommend to someone? And then is there anything Mm -hmm. you would like to promote? Well, the two things I want to promote, get that out of the way first, 
is, of course, my Pulpo pages of pro wrestling. And if you want to just come look at it, if you have stuff to share, please share because I'm always looking for new people to research. Then I also want to promote Lucha World. One word, uh, luchaworld.com, Fredo Esparza's Lucha Libre website. He has people like Fredo, Jose Fernandez, Matt Farmer have made so many contributions to Lucha Libre history, and Fredo is one of the best. Please check it out. He has such valuable articles. He's a great, and he's a great analyst of the business. So let's see, as far as books, one, well, we just mentioned Brian Solomon. Man, is that cat awesome or what? That guy is up there, man. That guy's It was interesting talking to him about that book last week. Now, I haven't cracked into it yet because I'm finishing one right now, but I'm like eager to dig into it. As far as biographies, top three. He doesn't just go in, I, I bet not a lot of people talk about this, but he doesn't just go into the sheik's origins he talks about his parent the sheik's parents immigrating to this country and what it was like growing up in their household this guy blew my well being the nerd again i could tell you i could have read a whole book just on his family never mind the sheik but it's one of the best written books and okay so his book is great and wow I have to include three books as one book. No, four books as one book. There's a fellow here named Rock Rims who has written in a a matter of five years, four of the best wrestling history books I've ever read. One on Southern California wrestling history, going back to the early 1900s. One on Northern California history, going back just as far. He wrote a very good autobiography you know, before Ron Starr passed away, he helped Ron Starr co-write his autobiography. And then he wrote a biography on Professor Roy Shire, who ran the Northern California Territory for many years. And what is amazing about his writing is he idolizes Roy Shire. Just, I think that's his favorite figure in the business. I might be speaking out of turn, but he makes no bones about admiring this guy, yet he did not shy away about talking about what a dirtbag the guy was too. And not in a scandalous, let's take him down way. He very matter-of-factly analyzed who this guy was, you know, what made his promotion work, what made him so brilliant. And, you know, a lot of his downfall had to be with his flaws. The only bummer about these books is none of them have ISBN numbers and they're all limited productions. So I recommend people friend Rock Rims on Facebook and on Twitter and just kind of keep your ear open for when he brings these books out to publish. Now he's working on the biography of Ray Stevens. Ooh, and be good. Oh my God, I'm salivating at that one already. And, and not just because it's Ray Stevens, because it's rock writing about Ray Stevens. And I also want to give him a thank you right here and now, because I don't think I would have got to work on the two books I'm going to work on if it weren't for him, because he originally was going to write a book on the history of Latino wrestling in California. And he phoned me up and asked me if I wanted to join him. And that was probably the best compliment I got all that year. And I said, yes. And a few months later, he said, hey, between this and the Ray Stevens book, I can't do both of these. So I'm going to have to bow out of this. And he said, you can still do the project. And that was my idea at the time to do the history of Latinos. But, you know, I don't make the rules. I just break them. So it's straight into journeymen of California, mostly Latino. So it's going to be a very niche book. But I have to thank him because I retired from my job four and a half years ago. And while I had a great time cleaning the house while Elena, God bless her, was working away. And I was just like smoking dope and drinking all day and cleaning the house and this, that and the other thing. 
Rock Rim, when he asked me to do that, he lit a fire under the hammock I was sleeping on and woke me up and got me researching. So I owe him a debt of thanks. Nice. Well, no matter how niche that book is, we will look forward to it. And hopefully we can have you on again when it's close to coming out and help you promote it. Oh, thank you so much. And you you guys, I've enjoyed this a lot. Have me on anytime. And I promise I'll try not to be such a jabber jaw next time. <laughs> no. Talking in long <laughs> You're the main event star here. Like just like ah. on the 605, like when you're on, you definitely command a presence and oh, not in you. an empty way. Like I sent Dave a message while you were talking that I was like, I just love all these names he's dropping because it is oh, wow. those names from around the, anytime you talk to people, you get the same name. So it's he- good to hear mm-hmm. ones outside of it. We were doing a top five rematch mm-hmm. at heart a few weeks back. And it was your list that caught my eye when you had like space man frank hickey on there and stuff yes where did these names come from and just when joe started cluing me in well that's why i always bring up having my first year watching lots of wrestling from argentina because i saw i didn't know what a hallucination was when i was 10 but I watched a hallucination every Saturday night on Titanes and El Ring. And that's why I'm in a huge Orange Cassidy fan. I kiss the mat that he steps upon. And while everybody is trashing his match with Wardlow a few weeks ago, I want to buy that canvas just so I had to wrap myself in it like I am of the contents of a burrito. And thank you, Orange Cassidy. And I thought they pulled off the match quite nicely. I like it. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us here today. And And thank you guys very much. All right. So that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again for listening to the Working Fans Podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at Fans Working. Our Facebook page is Working Fans Wrestling Pod. We have email where you can reach out to us and let us know what you think also. That's Working Fans Wrestling Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Working Fans Wrestling underscore pod. And then as always, please continue to listen to us on Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, all your major platforms. If you're following us on Apple Podcasts, which we are also on now, and YouTube, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It helps us bring you these podcasts where we get to talk to you and talk with you every week. 